I hope you were as touched as I was. That seems kind of quiet in here. Maybe it's a good, a good uh, sense of being subdued by the works of God, right? Amen. Well, I was reminded in our Sunday school class this morning how grateful I am that we are saved by grace and not by trivia. Because though there is inflation taking place out there, in here where I was sitting was deflation taking place as I uh, failed to remember things that should have come like this. So thank you, Sam, for that miserable experience uh, for me. Although others probably had a great experience because they, they nailed it. And um, anyway, that was, that was a lot of fun. Well, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning, and we will complete our little mini-series on giving. These are great chapters, chapters 8 and 9, some of the best chapters in the whole New Testament when it comes to understanding our place, how to use our money and our resources and our time for the glory of God. I'm not going to recap where we've come. I think I did that last last week. So I want to just dig right in. We're going to read our scripture. We're going to look at chapter 9 and read verses 6 through 15 this morning. And there's three more principles that I'd like for us to examine from this text. So if you turn to your Bibles, the point is this, the Apostle Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Now, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. What a passage. What a glorious way to frame the the gift of God, the blessing of God, and the grace of God that flows through us. The first verse that I want to tackle here this morning and the first principle is just stated very plainly and very simply in verse 7, and that is, God loves a cheerful giver. I like when Scripture is 
painted so clearly, so easily understood. And you get this, this quick window to God's heart. And that is that God delights in, he loves a cheerful, a cheerful giver. So there's many things about this verse that I appreciate. But one of the things I immediately appreciate about this verse is that it puts such a positive spin on giving. Because giving in our culture doesn't always have a positive spin. And yet there's this excitement. There's this great attitude. It's looked upon as this wonderful opportunity. This idea of giving, whether it's freely, sacrificially, but giving cheerfully. Because unfortunately, as this process can be abused and we can engage in the very opposite of what Paul says and we can appeal and out of compulsion you know the church or just even outside the church any kind of contribution or charitable giving it can be very manipulative I mean there are professionals out there that know they've studied psychology sociology the demographics our patterns, and they know exactly how to manipulate us to pull the trigger on certain things. That can be done. That's real. That is not at all the spin that Scripture puts on giving. It is to be a conscious choice where you you get with God, you wrestle with God, and you have a big view of what He's done in your life and really how the world operates. It's hard to give cheerfully if we, don't, if we don't know how the kingdom of God operates. A part of the kingdom of God's operation and economy is God blessing us and things flowing through our fingers. And we get the joy and the opportunity to also give. Now, I know that giving is not always um, a cheerful experience, not just because of maybe what's imposed from the outside but also from what's imposed on the inside. And that is because of our sinful nature, our tendency and temptation is to be selfish. It's to hoard. And Jesus gives a parable about the guy, uh, the farmer that was so blessed with his harvest of crops that his conclusion was, well, I need to build another barn to put him in. And the, the temptation is to try to hoard so that our Material possessions become our greatest security. And we believe the lie that if I just had a little more of this, or I just had a little more of this, then I would be set for life. And yet scripture says, no, you're set for life when your riches are found in Jesus Christ. And that he provides these things. He gives and takes away, right? In Job. It's all a part of his economy. Losing things or not having things actually sometimes works to our benefit in God's economy. But our sinful natures are threatened by these kind of sanctifying processes. A cheerful giver. You know, sometimes we see the, the appeals for contributions uh, on television. And I'm always kind of amused at myself because the way the needs are packaged... And sometimes there are great needs that need to be met around the world. But, you know, you might see you know, uh, children that are emaciated. They don't have enough to eat. They don't have access to just basic medical care. And flies are all over them, these kind of things. And, then, and so and 
in one part of my heart is this uh, compassion. And you, and you think to yourself, what a great need, that poor soul. And then yet the other part is also present of how much I would like to give. But in real life, I don't really want to give. I don't want to really get up and write a check to this organization and so forth. We have this battle in our hearts where because we're creating the image of God, there are, it seems like a wonderful idea, but it takes wrestling with God, really, sometimes to make cheerful giving happen. Sometimes it's more like weeping and gnashing of teeth than cheerful giving. But I look at this verse and I think, who would, what do we need more in this world? What do we often long for, especially right now, but love and cheer? I mean, who couldn't use some cheer right now? And yet here is a verse very explicit on how God has made it possible for us to have cheer in our hearts. And of all things, it's through giving. If we want a dose of cheer, one possibility or opportunity is simply by generous giving. So how do we do this? How can it become a cheerful process? Well, if we build on everything that we've learned in these chapters, it's by just, first of all, considering how good and generous God is. It's not always by looking at what we have or don't have first, looking at our own, our, our own status. But giving, first of all, cheerful giving comes from considering how great God is, how generous God is, and how much He has enriched us. So we consider his blessings and then we consider what he has done. Then we consider what he has done for us, the, the, the provisions that we have. And then we, we look at what we have and then we look out into the world and we look at others and we look at what they have or what they don't have. We, we see the needs. God opens our eyes to physical needs. He opens our eyes to spiritual needs and they're both real and we're to give to both in, in this era. And then we, we wrestle with God and we judge our hearts as we consider giving. We judge our hearts and our view of possessions and giving as compared to God's. That's, that's our standard, right? Our standard of knowing whether we should give or not. We're trying to attain this godly character. And so he becomes our standard or our judge. It's a learning process. It's designed to be a sanctifying process. That's why I say that I know that we, we take up an offering every Sunday or you may give to different charities every month. It's your routine. But we have to fight the temptation for it to just become a routine because when that money leaves our hands and goes into the plate, that's a sanctifying process that's taking place. It, it's communicating something about ourselves and how we think about God and what we know about His economy. So the bottom line is, you know, what do we give? Well, we're thinking about, well, what would please God the most? What would please God the most? And that might mean that when we might have a goal of, of giving our author, uh, offerings or contributions or, or our tithes, and that is the, a tithe is just how much you have determined before God that you're going to give back to Him. Now, I know last week that we determined that 
All the giving in the New Testament comes from the solid foundation of the Old Testament. And there's still a lot of principles that are are active today, principles of giving and giving generously. And there are ministry needs because there are people that have given their lives to serve God in certain ministries, which means they can't go out into that marketplace and make their living. And there's a lot of uh, physical needs out there. But as far as the actual law, that's been fulfilled in Christ, the 10%. So the New Testament, you might, your standard might be 10% before God. You might land on a 10%. But I would say in the, New, in the New Testament giving, have we ever arrived? Like, have you ever, can we say that I've arrived at how much I should give God and I'm very comfortable? So I think if it's a sanctifying process, that's going to change. It's just going to change based on what God is doing in our lives uh, on a material basis and what God is doing in our lives on a spiritual basis. Scripture wants it, therefore, to be a pleasant experience. And I hope it's a pleasant experience to you. I know that when I, before I went into ministry and I had a, a company and a business, we tithed, we, we gave a certain percent, we got together, put our heads together and say, okay, just in faith, what are we going to give to the Lord's work uh, as an uh, offering of thanksgiving for what, how He provides for us? And it was one of the most joyful things that we did as a company. Is we say, okay, the Lord has provided this. What's a need? God, how would you have us to give this money that you've provided for us? It was truly one of the highlights of our year. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. See, in God's kingdom, even sacrificial giving, even making personal sacrifices, can be the greatest source of joy for us. In order for it to be a cheerful experience, we have to have a kingdom mindset. You know, we just have to let go of some of the worldly thinking. We, we have to come into it with a kingdom mindset. It's more about God than it is about us. And when we start having that kingdom mindset and the sanctifying power of the Spirit takes place, you will find yourself caring about things and needs and people and noticing certain things that never dawned on you before. Has that ever happened to you? The Spirit softens our hearts. And all of a sudden, when you have a, a greater kingdom mindset, you become more aware of what God's doing. You become more sensitive to the needs of His people and the spiritual needs of propagating the gospel of Christ. Now, with that said, let me share some, uh, I guess, a stark reality of Christians and giving in our era. So in 2008, there was a book published entitled Passing the Plate, Why American Christians Don't Give Away More Money. And it was by sociologists of religion, Christian Smith and Michael Emerson. These guys have impressive PhDs. I mean, they did extensive research. This just wasn't a... These are no slouches. They really tried to study, to have the right questions, to present things in the right 
way, it was very extensive. So let me just read a few quotes. Passing the plate shows that few American Christians donate generously to religious and charitable causes, a parsimony that seriously undermines the work of churches and ministry. Far from the 10% of one's income, American Christians' financial giving typically amounts by some measures to less than 1% of annual earnings. And at startling one out of five, and a startling one out of five self-identified Christians give nothing at all. So according to this, 20% of Christians don't give at all. So to put it simply, uh, according to this book and their research, and I, I got to tell you, that's not. This isn't my world. This isn't my view, because my world's small. I don't do the. I don't look out there into all the churches. I just know this church community and 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 I guess you know evangelicalism. But it would seem that remarkably, American Christians, according to this, are not generous. So he says the goal of this book is not to be more, not to morally chide or contemn American Christians for their tight-fistedness. We don't need to do that. The numbers speak for themselves. And they continue, Americans curiously do not often view themselves as living in abundance. Most Americans, even the upper middle class, often see themselves as just getting by. So they ran some figures. Christians in the United States who actually attend church twice a month or more often who consider themselves strong or very strong Christians, earned a total collective 2005 income of more than $2 trillion. So one scholar says, if all the Bible-believing Christians just in America came together, we would be the sixth or seventh richest nation on the earth. When Jesus says things like, of whom much is given, much is expected, that should be very sobering to us. And one last quote, earning higher incomes does not make American Christians more generous with their money. It actually appears to make them more stingy, protective, and distrustful. Now, the wealthiest national body of Christian believers at any time in all the church history end up spending most of their money on themselves or on themselves. Um, that's, this is sobering to me. Maybe I'm, I'm naive, but I thought while I'm in this scripture, what's out there? You know, what's the consensus? Has any research been done regarding tithing? And this is one of the, the uh, most popular books and trustworthy books written on the topic. So it would seem that the, the American mindset is that we, we love God and we trust God and when God blesses us abundantly, our response is not to assume that there are kingdom purposes for this blessing and that it's not supposed to stay in my bank account necessarily, but it, might, it doesn't dawn on us all the time that, wow, maybe this bonus or, or this deduction or whatever, this inheritance may have other purposes than to enrich myself and to upgrade my lifestyle. Our assumption, according to these um, statistics, our assumption is that, for the most part, when we get more money, we assume that's God wanting to raise our living standard. So the generosity does not flow out. It's, it's 
sobering to me how much power the, the church or financial power the church could have if we did have more of a kingdom mindset. Now, of course, there's been, I, I didn't read this, but I would venture to say that in all the world, the Christians are the most generous givers. If you look at all the charitable uh, organizations or even how they, they started, like hospitals, that's, that's Christian charity. So there's tremendous amount, and, and, I, and they said they don't want to morally chide. It's not, the idea is not to, to be manipulative or spread guilt, but I share these with us, myself included, so that we will have an understanding of the mindset that's out there and the challenges that we as Americans face. They're different than other nations. They're different than Christians have in other parts of the world. But our tendency is to look at what we have and see that we don't have as much as the person above us and kind of get into that squirrel cage or wheel where we, we're always trying to go up and it just for whatever reason doesn't dawn on us to settle in, well, what does God have for me? And what's the best purpose for my income, this money, from God's point of view? Now... I know people, plenty of Christians that make ample amounts of money. And you would not know it by looking at their lifestyle. You wouldn't know it by looking at the condition of their house or the kind of cars they drive. And it's because they don't keep it for themselves and assume that I'm going to just get bigger and better, bigger and better, bigger and better. It's because it flows out to things that have an eternal award. That's very admirable. And the Apostle Paul says that our giving should absolutely reflect our confession of faith. I like that, that transparency. I like that link. How he draws it back to when you confess Christ, you are confessing to a worldview. You're confessing to a kind of living that does work its way into our wallets. So much that it's not as hard to give, but it actually becomes one of the highlights of your week is to be able to share. So cheerful giving. And then the second point is generous giving's harvest. So what, what do we get at it out of it if you want to look at it in that perspective? So is there a reward or is it just do we just always have to make the sacrifice? No, there is a reward. There are built-in rewards that God has blessed us with. There's a um, cause and effect. There's consequences. So here it is in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then in 10, he who supplies seed to the sower... And bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So the way we live and the way we give does have consequences. So while we're struggling and, and trying to decide how much, we just need to know that if we get it wrong, if, if we... If we tend to be on the stingy side or the selfish side, that will 
that will bear that kind of fruit because that's what we're sowing. And vice versa. So there's consequences. And when it comes to giving, technically speaking, the understanding is what we're doing is we're only giving what God has given us. So it's just passing through our hands. And we have ownership of it and we earned it, but we also have the right to choose with our own hearts to give. We get to be generous. We get to experience this joy. God's opened the door for us. And he can put that grace in our hearts. So it comes down to the principles of stewardship. Giving back to God. So if you think about well, the example is a farmer. What does a farmer do with his seeds? He has his seeds. And in order to feed his family, in order to make a living... He has to do something very specific with those seeds. He's got to decide how many do I sow or what do I need to keep to eat for grains, so to speak. In that culture, bread was a big thing. You use the grains, you can make them into flour or you sow them into the ground. Now, if you eat all the seeds, if you use them all for yourself, then the future crop does not exist. So you have to choose what you're going to put in the ground, what you're going to keep for yourself, what you're going to put in the ground. You put them in the ground and then you trust the ground to do its thing. The world's designed so that when you plant things in the soil, they come up. Matter of fact, it's designed even when you don't plant things in the garden and the flower beds, they come up. You know that part too. So it's fertile. It's very, very fertile. So the farmer plants his seed. He makes that decision in fertile ground. And then he produces, as he casts his seed, he produces a harvest. That's how you make it. You get a return on your seed that you put in the ground because it gives back. And now it's your provision. Now, let me tell you what this is not. This, is, this principle is not the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is a, is a real thing. In our culture. The prosperity gospel is more about the emphasis on getting rich. Than the emphasis on emulating the character of God. Using giving as an opportunity for sanctification. To become more like the person of Jesus Christ. Now some look at this verse. And they see it in financial terms. As a way to plant seeds so that you get rich. The assumption here is that if I'm generous with my little seeds then God will bless me with this financial harvesting. And so it becomes a financial transaction or a financial scheme. And it's often taught in the way that if when you give in small amounts to God, you're planting seeds to be blessed materially. You give materially and you're blessed materially. That's that's the assumption of how it works. Now, there are consequences when it comes to giving. And obviously, there are consequences. There's cause and effect to all of our lives. So if you, if you tend to be a more giving person, people will relate to that, be blessed by that, and be more prone to be generous with you. Do you, you know, so it just works that way in life. But this is a, a principle here 
that can, if you look at this, is this, you know, if you think, well, God is, is, wants me to give money, and I might, it, it becomes like playing the lottery because giving money to God kind of increases my chances of becoming wealthier. And right now, I might be feeling kind of stuck. So it gives me hope. And I would say it would be a false hope. It's one of those long shots. It's not intended. Our seeds of money uh, are not intended to make us rich. It's about giving, not getting, right? It's like the exact opposite of what the scripture really teaches about the whole purpose of giving sacrificially and generously. And we become rich in Christ. We become, become rich in kingdom ways. You know, it's not spending money or, or putting money in the plate every Sunday because I just can't wait to get that big harvest of riches that God will give me. I would say that's false gospel advertising. We already have this in Christ. He already tells us not to be anxious about things because he'll provide them for us. He knows what we need. He knows about the staples. He created the world and we are dependent on food and air and water and so forth. He understands that in clothes. And he says, in essence, I have that. I'll take care of that. Now, it might not be according to the standard we're hoping for or longing for, but God will cover us. In that area. It doesn't say God. Loves the rich. And the goal in giving is to get. Rich. He loves the cheerful giver. Who wants to honor God. How much. Did the cheerful giver in this passage. Give. We don't know right. He doesn't say he loves the cheerful giver. That gives X dollars. It's the cheer, it's the heart, it's the interaction, it's the sanctifying relationship that happens between the child of God and his father. Now, having said that, look what often uh, the prosperity teaching leaves out about these kind of scriptures. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, all of a sudden, this transaction or transition just took place from material things to spiritual things. Do you see what the harvest is? Do you see what our reward is? Our reward is righteousness. Our reward is being more like Christ, being more pure. And remember, blessed are the righteous. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see what the blessing is that's wrapped up in our giving? It's that we get... To reap the rewards of good, clean, honest, pure, faithful living before Christ. There's, there are built-in rewards. It's, it's harvest of righteousness. James 3.18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So this process is doing what? I don't know. We, we may increase our wealth and we may not. That's God's business. But the promise here is a harvest of righteousness, righteousness, in other words, an increase of holiness. Now, holiness should make us excited because that should be our paradigm for Christian living to be more like Christ. And he's holy is to forsake the things of the world. And so giving becomes this wonderful way for us to become even holier 
and godlier. Maybe wealthier? I don't know. Maybe not. But surely godlier. So it's, it's not so much about the money of uh, being rich or poor. It's about how we use it. It's being righteous. It's being honest and generous. So in, in this context, we can look at it in this way. You can see that there are, there are two kinds of rich and two kinds of poor. Uh, you have the righteous and the unrighteous poor. And you have the righteous and the unrighteous rich. Is it wrong to be rich? Is it unrighteous to be wealthy in Scripture? Absolutely not. God blessed Abraham. He, he accumulated more and more wealth, goats and servants and so forth, as God established him. Abraham wasn't a perfect man, but he trusted in God. He had faith in God. He was a wealthy man. God blessed him. Solomon was filthy rich. He, was, he inherited a kingdom and he was a wise man and he made it even more prosperous. And it wasn't the riches that caused Solomon's heart to stumble. It was his faulty view of women. That's what took him down, was his view of women. He was filthy rich and God used him to build the temple. It was a glorious, very luxurious place of worship that that displayed the luxury and the splendor of God. But the purpose, the, the point is that you can be righteous and rich, or you can be rich and unrighteous. So you see unrighteous rich in Scripture as well. You have false teachers. They're just in it for the game. They'll, they'll write the book. They do whatever they have to to appease the people so they can get the income and the money from that. You got the... The crooked tax collector like Zacchaeus who conned people would take advantage of ignorant people and, and, and just switch things around so that he was constantly in a dishonest way becoming richer and richer. So it matters. It matters how we earn our money. Not how much we have. It matters how we earn it. It matters what we do with our money. There are lots of ways that we can become richer if we will just fudge and be a little dishonest here and there. A little gain, a little soft choice that nobody will know about but you, but also God. That so matters how we get it, gain it, it matters how we use it. There, it's godliness, it's righteousness, it's honesty involved. Are we loving ourselves with it or, or, or are we trying to... De- decrease ourselves so that he might get the glory, so that he might increase. Now, we also have the righteous and the unrighteous poor. Just because someone's poor doesn't mean that they're righteous. I've heard it described uh, in, in these terms that I thought was very helpful. And that is you have three kinds of poor. You have the deserving poor, the working poor, and the undeserving poor. So the, the working poor would be those that are working hard. They're honest for the most, you know, they're, they're putting their best foot forward. They just can't get ahead. And the cars keep breaking down or there's medical issues that just sap the, the money right out of it. And for whatever reason, circumstances and so forth, they're, they're hardworking, they're honest, but they cannot get ahead. They always seem to be behind. That would be the working poor. 
The deserving poor are described as those who are not able to work. They would. It's not because the sinfulness of laziness or something they would, but maybe there's a disability of some kind. They just are not able to do it. If circumstances change, they would, and they would work hard. And so they are the deserving poor, and they need help. So, so the working poor, it's not because of sin that they're poor, or the, the deserving poor, it's not because of sin that they're poor. And then there's the un, what some consider the undeserving poor, and those who are are the ones that they can work. They're very capable. They're very able. But according to Proverbs, they're like the ones who uh, they start to wake up in the morning and say, nope, I'm going to stay in bed. Laziness, slothfulness. There are consequences to that. There are also consequences, Proverbs says, to those that fall for get-rich schemes. There are people who are broke. Because they naively gave money and invested in something and they lost it. Or maybe they have bad habits. Costly habits. But it's their own choice. It's by their own choice that they are, they're not living wisely and responsibly. See, you can be unrighteously rich. and You can be unrighteously poor. Or ex- the exact opposite. And the emphasis is on the purity of our heart. It's how we... We bend ourselves to God's ways and and bend ourselves to God's will. One of the things that I think is, is sad, well, one of the many things I think that is sad about our culture is how we now are, well, you get into the whole social justice issue that has affected the church because we have a responsibility to help people. But then you also have... A kind of a redefining of terms that are good and they get redefined and you think you're doing the right thing and, and only to find out maybe not so much. So like we take good words, wonderful words like equality and equity and, and, then, and then some people just use them to their advantage. So equality is a good thing and it means, and we should stand for equality. It means that everybody has equal opportunity, right? That we don't just put somebody down for no reason and elevate others but that we all have access to the same thing. And if we put our heart and our, and our grit and our elbow grease into it, we all have a fighting chance because we have been equally giving opportunities to get this job and so forth. And then we have equity, which is also a good thing. But what it is turning into now in our society, I would say because of a wrong view of, of economics, is that we want the same result for everybody. So now it's not so important about how much effort is put into getting that result. Our, our cry in our culture is everybody should have the same result. Equal income, equal access to these things. So it's kind of gotten twisted to where it actually will work against individuals in feeding our minds that we deserve what other people have, whether we work for it or not. And that's what equality is. And that's not what equality or equity is. All these things are taken into consideration with biblical wisdom. And if we're not careful, we can actually promote unrighteousness and underperformance and frustration because those who are righteous are often taken advantage at the expense of those that are not. So there's this moral obligation to work, work hard, to work honestly, and to be generous.
Charles Wesley. So he said, Discipleship makes us more diligent and frugal. And as we become more diligent and frugal, wealth increases. Uh, he, he goes on to say it's, um, it's almost impossible for Christians, if they practice this, not to become somewhat wealthy. Because you're working hard, you're making money, and then you're being responsible with it, you're saving it and so forth. So it's, it's about character, right? Giving is about character. He encouraged the Methodists of the day to live by these three principles. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And by the way, Charles Wesley um, obviously was a very popular minister and took in a lot of money. He had a set, he set for himself a living wage and never went over it, no matter how much money was given between him, he and God. This is how much I need to live. The rest goes to the Lord. So before him, John Calvin coined what has become known to us as the Protestant work ethic. It promoted the value of hard work and thrift and efficiency in one's worldly calling, which, especially in the Calvinist view, were deemed signs of an individual's election and eternal salvation. In other words, working hard, going to our jobs and understanding that this is our, our calling this is our form of worship to the Lord. It's, we, we, put, we were put in the garden to work it and keep it. We all have our little spheres of influences. And God he puts us in position of management. It's, it's our baby, so to speak, that we use. We conquer it and subdue it for the glory of God, that God might be exalted. So we... We don't want to make the mistake of thinking about the harvest and prosperity theology. And I would also warn us against uh, what is known as the poverty theology. And that's just kind of the thinking where you look at Scripture and then you want to be like Jesus and you see Jesus. And, and um, you, you think, well, Jesus is poor, so it's good to be poor. It's godlier to be poor. God would... would I, I could please God by just giving away everything and living with with nothing. And that would be, I would be godlier than those that have things. It would be godlier for me to walk to town and, instead of driving with a car and so forth. Then you get into this, not just a minimalist, but a, an almost an impoverished type of theology. And that's not what Scripture teaches. It doesn't teach that the poorer you are, the more righteous you are unnecessarily. See, it's a matter of the heart. You could have way more than the average person, way less than the average person, and still be a giver, a, a cheerful giver, and a generous giver according to your relationship to God and what God has done in your heart. So, how about rich in character? Think about it in terms of it's an opportunity to be richer and richer and richer and richer in character. Now, wonder God loves a cheerful giver with that harvest of righteousness. And then lastly, generous giving promotes the triune God. And I know this is obvious. Because that's kind of the purpose, right? We want God to be exalted. We want to honor Him. 
Verse 12, for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. So you're meeting physical, material needs, and the result of that is that those that have those needs are just thanking God. You see how it goes from the earth and rises up to the heaven? It's a practical, but yet it's a spiritual exercise of praise. So the, the financial, the material, the dollars, the, pen, the copper, the silver, and the metals can translate into people worshiping and praising God. People coming to know Christ. And that's one of the joys of giving because giving can communicate how much we love God and celebrate God and others. It's contagious. When we live for God that, that cheerfully... And willfully, and we just give our lives to Him and our pocketbooks to Him and everything that we have to Him is contagious. And as we live generously and meet needs, others are, other eyes are opened to the glories of the gospel. So it has that practical and that spiritual effect when the kingdom of earth becomes an outflow and an overflow to exalt God, the King of heaven. Now, notice how this fits, I would say, beautifully into our theme of this book, God Reconciling the World Through Christ. Because if we give to ministries that are faithfully exalting God, we reach out to needy souls. You know, the, the, the James teaching of faith without works is dead. And not just say we care, but put our money behind it. There's this production of a harvest of righteousness and a thanksgiving to God. More people will care about God. More people will know God. More people will love God and praise God. Simply put, cheerful giving and generosity promotes the worship of Christ on many, many levels. And so that's the, that's the, the pressure we're under it's a pressure we're under. It's kind of a kingdom pressure, that reality. And yet it turns into funding gospel work for the glory of God. So we can be generous whether the economy goes up or down. Because it's about the heart, not so much about the amount. And the more we give, the more opportunity there is for people to know and to grow in Christ. And just to close with the very familiar illustration of when you see a hearst, what you don't see behind it are U-Hauls because you can't take it with you, right? There are things we can't take with us. There's a lot of truth in that, but there are things we can. And what we know we will see in heaven when we get there, I don't know about your your laptops and your games and our cars and our homes and so forth. But what we do know we will see are the smiling faces of those whose lives have been changed by the gospel of Christ for the glory of God. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.